This is a CBC Podcast. Hey, I'm Claire Bonnieman, and welcome to The Loop. I don't know about you, but I have questions. The biggest one is, what do we do now? And not just with COVID, but with news from Haiti and Afghanistan and even climate change. The list of questions just keeps getting longer. And I mean, I was honestly, I was really hoping for some answers. But today on the show, we'll be hearing about Afghan Edmontonians who are watching from across the world, wondering what they can do now to help their family back home. But first, we try to answer the never-ending question, COVID. What do we do now? We've entered yet another version of the pandemic, and I'm no expert, but honestly, I didn't see this one coming. Someone who did, though, is Gosha Gasparovic, a developmental biologist and researcher at the University of Calgary. Hi, Gosha. Hi. I'm curious because you've been sharing a lot of projections throughout the pandemic on Twitter. Um, So what are the models that you've created showing us for the next few months? Uh, So if we don't do anything, if we don't uh, put any public health measures, any extra public health measures now. So in mid-September, we can reach something between 5,000 daily new cases and 8,000 daily new cases. Of course, if we start doing something, it might happen a little bit later, like in, in October. But definitely we are we are on track to to see those such numbers in the fall. So some people were saying that, oh, maybe it won't translate to hospitalizations, but it will. Yeah. And these projections, I mean, they're not guarantees, luckily. As you said, certain actions could kind of move um, the rise in different directions. But how should us non-scientists like myself treat these visualizations you're creating? Because honestly, they're kind of scary. Well, so, yeah, they are scary. And I see this delta wave as worse than previous waves. Not in terms, so the only thing it's better, that we will have less death. But in terms of his hospitalizations, of how how dangerous this disease is, it's it's worse, and also it's progressing much faster. Like the speed of growth is much faster, the rate of growth is much faster, and also what is dangerous with this new way, the with Delta wave, is since the beginning of summer there was this big pressure on normalizing COVID, normalizing presence of COVID in our society, like trying to label it as something as any other respiratory virus present here and so on. So it's like this pressure or or on learning to live with it. While it's a pandemic, we cannot live with it normally. Hmm. But this thing like trying to it's presented as something normalized. Yeah. It's really dangerous because it means that we won't fight with it anymore. The strategy we had till now, so just mitigation, just reacting when our hospitals are getting full, is really bad strategy. It didn't work. It led to already it's leading to the fourth wave and it didn't solve much. And it's still possible to locally eliminate COVID, but we really need to treat it seriously, not try to (laughs) kind of label it as something what it is not. So label it as endemic or mild cold virus. It's not. It's dangerous virus. It's not a cold. 
Yeah. Uh, we have seen the government make some choices. They extended um, certain COVID kind of rules and protocols uh, another six weeks into September. Um, what's your reaction to the response that we've seen from government and healthcare leaders as we approach and enter this next wave? Uh, so I think it's irresponsible and reckless what they're doing. Like the thing that happened a couple, several weeks ago with announcing that we dropped the trace isolate was... Uh, I was shocked by this because I expected we already knew it was in the moment we knew that Delta is growing exponentially, that it's not under control. And I was expecting that we will hear that we will have more public health measures. And we heard that test trace isolate is supposed to be dropped. And then it took two weeks of of people going on the streets and protesting, please bring back test trace isolate. So we need this citizen movement to make public health do their basic job, which is, I think it's unacceptable. I think public health should be there for us. I shouldn't spend like one last one and a half year doing, doing models in my free time. It's really, <laughs> it's really super strange that we have to fight for basic public health measures. It's been a long year for advocates like yourself. It has, right? A very long year. And it's a job that you, I don't think, expected you'd have. Um, but you've been part of a group, too, that's been pushing for COVID zero. And you've brought that up a couple of times. Um, a COVID zero approach throughout the pandemic. It sounds like you're saying it's not too late to try that. No, it's absolutely not too late. Like Atlantic Canada has it all the time in place. And even now with Delta raging through the, through the world, they are sort of sort of in a safe place. They are they are still they have low case number or even no cases, and they don't have like I know I know that in Moncton they had a little spike. I don't know if they managed with it already, but Nova Scotia is safe. Prince Edward Island is safe. Uh, they don't have the fourth wave while we do have it. So uh, so it's working. Zero COVID is working. It worked all the way. It's it's sustainable. Yeah. So with Delta, it's still possible to do, but unfortunately, Delta has, is really much more transmissible. Mm -hmm. So we can still stop it, but we need really public health measures and vaccines. Like vaccines alone won't stop it. Yeah. They're not stopping it. And even if we vaccinate more people, it's still mathematically it's impossible. So do you uh, think vaccinations have helped us at all? Oh, they, they did. They tremendously, they helped us a lot. Like, of course. So first of all, they protected people from dying and many people from needing hospitalizations. And they also quenched, not quenched, but slowed down the spread. But they could end pandemic maybe by themselves with the old variant. But because we had, by letting COVID spread, we cultured all over the world the most, more transmissible variants. So they are faster, so they are twice, like Delta is twice faster, twice more transmissible than original variant. Vaccines just managed to sort of compensate this growth. Mm. Well, I'm curious because we're hearing now, too, about a decision over booster shots, right? Specifically for immunocompromised folks in reaction to Delta. We should know in September whether or not we actually need them. But what do you think that idea of adding an extra shot could mean for this fourth wave? Oh, it would help. It would definitely help us fight it. Uh, because like, if we, that, that's what Israel is doing right now. They are giving booster shots to the most, like, to most vulnerable people, so elderly people and immunocompromised. And also, I would give booster shots to 
um, essential workers. Mm-hmm. So people who are most exposed to the virus all the time and uh, can contribute to the spread the most. But I, I wouldn't focus only on vaccines because as an individual measure, it's a very potent one. But the cocktail of measures we had, the public health measures we had last spring, is more potent than vaccines only. So what we can do with public health measures like financially supported shutdown, closing in-person schools, protecting um, protecting like uh, travel controls and um, mandatory quarantines, the combination of all this and testing, tracing, isolating, the combination of these measures is more potent than vaccines. Yeah. So if we want to control it, if we want to control the, the, the pandemic, we should use everything we have at the moment. Gosha, it's hard. I feel like we don't have a crystal ball, but with your projections and your work, you've been staring into the future a lot more than the rest of us have been able to. Do you think we're ever actually going to see the end of the pandemic at this point? It depends what it depends what we do. Again, I know that I'm like broken record here, <laughs> but if we uh, if we aim for elimination, we can see the end of the pandemic, and even we can see a global elimination. But it has to be it has to start locally. But if we say, okay, we cannot eliminate, let it let it run, then we won't see the end of the pandemic anytime soon because the virus mutates all the time. So, okay, now we have the fourth wave. Probably we will, once we reach the level of daily cases that we see overwhelm hospitals, we will have a lockdown or shutdown again. We will go down with cases. And then we, start re- we will start reopening again, like if we continue with the strategy we had. And then we will have a f- f- fifth wave and the sixth wave. Virus will mutate, will get more transmissible. We will learn how to ev- evade the vaccines, how to evade our immune response. Without elimination strategy, I, 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 I don't see I don't see a nice future for us with that. Oh, it sounds like a bummer. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm really sorry. <laughs> no, no. I mean, how tired are you? You've been watching this now for more than a year and a half. How exhausted are you from, from watching this situation and these numbers go up and down over and over? I'm pretty tired and, and, and quite, yeah. I still have hope. I still have hope that, that maybe the next wave will teach us that we have to eliminate and that that the leaders will stop passing the bug between each other. We need higher level, like systemic response, because it's public health emergency. It's it's, it's a pandemic, so it needs like systemic uh, solution. We need to ask governments to protect us, to really aim for ending the pandemic, not telling us to live to learn to live with the virus, with this virus, because it's not possible to live with this virus. The news out of Afghanistan is making front pages around the world. Ever since the Taliban entered the capital city of Kabul, Afghans who have left the country are concerned for their home and the safety of everyone still there. And right here, Afghan Edmontonians are fearing for their families, especially female relatives. CBC's Kashmala Fidamahatram dug into this this week. Hey, Kash. Hi. Hi, Claire. So tell me about Aryan Hakim. What family members is she worried about right now? 
So Aryan Hakim has been, uh, she moved to Edmonton after she got married, which was like eight years ago. Um, so she's been here this whole time, but her two brothers, her sister and her parents are all still in Afghanistan. And she is especially worried for her two brothers because they used to work for the government. And like we've heard this over and over again, how the Taliban are actually looking for people who are working for the government. There's this whole thing, like, even though they've said that, like, you know, they, all, all is forgiven, they want a peaceful transition. A lot of people who used to work for the now fallen Afghan government are actually worried that they might be facing some consequences at the hands of the Taliban. So she's especially really worried for them. Uh, she told me how, like, because uh, she's been in talks with her parents this whole time. Mm-hmm. She's been calling her mom ever since Taliban took over on Sunday. Um, she says she's been basically glued to her phone. She hasn't done any work. She had to have her husband, like, cook and clean and everything because she <laughs> said she just couldn't do anything besides, like, you know, just be glued to the news and, you know, like, to her phone to, uh, to wait for calls from her siblings and her mom. She said her mom said that um, the Taliban had actually been to her house three times already, asking for, uh, especially their older brother by name. Uh, and they're really, really worried for his safety. He's currently in hiding right now. Um, so they didn't want to disclose too many too much information about him either like we weren't allowed to use his photos uh didn't want to give too much information about his work uh because she's like the taliban are like reading every news out there and she's worried for you know what if they find something yeah she's worried for her mom too who keeps calling and keeps crying um she's especially worried for her brother's uh daughters he has four daughters between the ages of 10 and 16 and yeah, she's like she she's very, very scared for his daughters. Yeah, I mean, that is one of the big parts of the story that we're hearing right now is they're laying out this planned regime and they're promising a peaceful transition of power, honoring women's rights using the guidance of Islamic laws. Uh, so what was Aryan's reaction to hearing that? Yeah, so so her thing is that people should not believe it. Like she is very like honestly, and that's one of the reasons why she felt compelled to call us because like mm-hmm. she reached out to us to do this interview um, because she said like I saw their interviews from the Taliban saying like oh this isn't going to be like the '90s this is going to be different women will actually have rights within Islamic law that is uh, but they haven't obviously explained what that means um, they've done all these interviews on TV and I've seen it online I've talked to people who actually believe that this may be a little bit different but Afghanis themselves that I've spoken to say not to believe a word they're saying because on the ground what they're hearing from their family what they're hearing from their friends that is not the case at all she she actually told me about how her mom was really scared that she actually ran out to the store to buy a burqa because like that's like the expectation now they all have to wear burqas i mean we saw the cnn reporter who used to usually you know have like a light scarf on but now she had to report in a burqa Mm -hmm. um and another thing is the people are taking advantage of the fact that women won't have rights anymore like when her mom went to uh buy a burqa burqas are usually she said like 500 afghani which is the currency there now they have prices of shot up to about like eight thousand afghani so can you imagine like people who can't afford it like what they're gonna people are really scared basically again she said that like she's, she's still hearing from her siblings because her brother is in co- is in contact with like his some of his colleagues she mm-hmm. said he was telling them like how uh, he's still worried for his daughters because they're still hearing reports that they're, they're taking in like if people have like young daughters the the taliban are taking them for themselves 
has her family tried to get out or have they been able to access any help to get out of the country? That's the thing. It's very hard. Yeah. I mean, we saw the footage out of the Kabul airport. Like, it's nearly impossible to get out unless you have, like, really, like, a lot of resources, a lot of money. It's, or you ha- have, like, really good connections. It's near impossible. She wants her brother to leave. But she says she doesn't know how, you know, like she's Mm -hmm. pleading to the Canadian government. Like that was her last thing that she said to us was like, you know, like, I really hope maybe the Canadian government would step up and like help people like her brother who have no means uh, to leave. But she she doesn't know. And that's what I'm hearing across the board from like everyone I've spoken to. Yeah, and because it's true. I mean, Aaron is just one Afghan Edmontonian, but there is a a pretty significant community here in town, right? Yeah, there's a... I mean, these stats are a little bit old. This is from the 2016 Statistics Canada. According to that, there were at least uh, more than 2,000, like 2,400 Afghanis in Edmonton. But obviously, like that number, I'm sure has significantly grown by now. Um, I also spoke to Mohammed Sana, uh, who is the owner of uh, Afghan Chapan Kebab in North Edmonton, if anybody's ever been there. He actually has a sister who's still in Afghanistan, and she's been there like her whole life. Sana has actually been in Edmonton for the past, I'd say, I think he said 40 years. Like he came here when like the Russians came in in the 80s. So he's been in Edmonton for a very long long time. And this whole time, his sister like decided to stay in Afghanistan. She's a doctor there. Mm. And again, we've also heard how the Taliban treat women with careers, despite what they're saying. He says he's really worried for her. Like she called him on Sunday when the Taliban finally took over Kabul crying. Um, He said uh, she's worried for her own self. She hasn't left the house. She's been there for at at least when I spoke to him on Tuesday, she said she she had not left her house at all. She also has a daughter and granddaughters. So his sister is really worried for them as well. So they don't know what to do. And again, uh, when it comes to like coming out, because that's another question I asked him, like, do you want them to leave and be able to come to Canada? Mm -hmm. And he said he does, but he just doesn't know how like he doesn't know what he can do or like what they can do and how will they be able to get out of there yeah i I mean that is the question right what options do afghans have here in edmonton to help families back home is there anything they can do from this distance yeah that's a good question well there's like uh there's pleas to the government like a lot of people are pleading the canadian government to kind of help uh families like muhammad sana and aryan hakim's who are not able to kind of leave on their own to help them out. But we don't know yet. Um, I know the Canadian government promised like 20,000 Afghanis to come to Canada, but I think that's for people who already got out. There's also, um, I know on Edmonton AM, we spoke to uh, a former RCMP officer who trained the national and local police in Afghanistan. And he talked a little bit about like how actually complicated it is to get people out of there. You know, like he talked about like, A, especially like right now, like this ongoing political upheaval, he was talking about how the governments have to worry about like not only for security of like their own people security for their pilots the crew even the armed forces that are going in there which is why there's like this whole plea to kind of get them out i know a lot the discussions right now that i'm seeing online a lot of people are saying like this should have been done ahead of time like get people out of there before troops were pulled completely but obviously hindsight is 2020 right like there's not there's nothing like concrete that people can do in order to help their own family members out right now. Yeah, except just hope they're safe, right? Basically, yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for your work on this cash. 
Oh, yeah, no problem. Thank you. We want to end the show today with the voice of one Afghan Edmontonian. Sudaba Ibrahimi is especially concerned for what the future holds for her family who still live in Afghanistan. She's been in Canada for two and a half years now, after leaving the country as a government-sponsored refugee. Here's some of Sudaba's conversation with CBC Edmonton's Rod Kurtz from this week. How are you feeling as you've been watching what's been unfolding over the past few days? How should I feel? Like, uh, it have been warning, telling people stuff. The people are running away and they're taking girls. So I'm not feeling well. I, I'm worried about my family. My family, they are on back home, my whole family. I would be interested to know um, just a sense of, of how the Afghan community in Edmonton is feeling right now and how, how, how people are, are dealing with what they're seeing in Afghanistan. We are very grateful that we are in Canada. We, are, we live in this peaceful environment and this peaceful country. But because my family is there, it means my half, my half family is there. It means I am there, right? My blood is there. So I, I am also worried about them very much because... I need them beside myself. I need them to live, to live life like me mm-hmm. in Canada. That's why I request from government to help them and to let them to come here to uh, to live with us. So, having spoken to your family just in in recent days, is there a, any sort of a plan to leave? What has your brother told you? My brother, he told me that I wanna come uh, get out of this country because his life is in serious danger. No one can guarantee me their life. They're my family, my blood. I need them beside me. I don't know what to do. Whenever I sing, I, my mother, she cries every night about my brother and sisters that they're going to kill my children. They're going to kill my children. Of course, he, she's a mother. And she she's like very even she got I'm sorry no that's fine it's fine Sadaba there is no way for them to get out of there the, the government doesn't show any way for us have you have you been able to talk with Canadian authorities? There's certainly reports of, you know, interpreters and those I, who have helped coming, being I able to come. Email lots of immigration. I email immigration centers. They they didn't give us any response. They didn't give us any response. My brother, my sister, my brother-in-law, my whole family is stuck in Afghanistan. They have no way. So for people who are listening and, and hearing, hearing you say that, what, what, what would you want Canadians to do? What would you want people to do? I want the Canadians and the people of Canada to help Afghanistan, help millions of Afghans and millions of lives. Taliban captures the freedom of people. And I want them to help my family. I, it was a dream of me and my family that Canada... Give us our lost family. Please help us. 
The Loop is a weekly podcast from CBC Edmonton. And our team is Leslie Goldstone, Corey Haberstock, Christina Silva, and James Evans. Our theme music is Change Your Mind by Edmonton musician John Common. And I'm Claire Bonnyman. Thank you so much for listening. There's always so much more to know. So you can find out what's going on with us every single Friday. We put out a fresh episode of The Loop. And of course, if you want to email us in the meantime, uh, you can do that at theloop at cbc.ca. And to always stay in The Loop, you can follow the show on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.